Um, have you ever uh, been on a vacation or on a trip that you did all the planning and, and uh, things just turned out uh, differently than you had hoped? Uh, you, you know, double-checked your reservations and, and downloaded, if you were driving, downloaded the latest version of Google Maps. Um, but uh, if you're like me, most likely, no matter how well you plan, um, there's going to be a missed connection. There's going to be a car that breaks down. Uh, we're going to be in a place where we didn't um, know we were going to be, and I'm sure we all could tell stories like that. I have lots of great memories growing up of um, vacations. Most often it was camping, and for a lot of years, um, we owned a station wagon. And this station wagon, I'm not sure who thought of this, but the third seat faced backwards. And actually, the back end, okay, did this. Okay, so the window went up into the top and the tailgate went down. And so driving on vacation, facing backwards was not a good idea. We were often sick. But um, one in particular, one vacation in particular that I do remember is when we went camping up in uh, northeastern Arizona on a river. And I'm the youngest of three boys. And um, I, I'm not even sure I was in kindergarten. Yeah, but it, it was cool. We were on this river. My dad had bought this um, blow-up boat, not just a raft, but it was literally a, a little boat. And so the four of us, my dad and my three, two brothers and I, were, were floating down this river, and this is cool, and I'm pretty sure we didn't even have life vests on. I'm not, I don't even know if they made them back in those days. We didn't wear seatbelts. We didn't have life vests on, but we are floating down this river, and we look ahead, and it's a pretty swift-flowing river, as I remember, and up ahead, a barbed wire fence is going across the river. So we go plowing into this barbed wire fence. It pops the little boat. We are now flailing in the water. My dad's doing his best, as I remember, you know, to make sure we're all okay. And, you know, so there's obvious panic. And we get to the side. Okay, we're okay. We look at that was awesome. <laughs> you know, so it makes a great story. And I'm sure we have lots of those of things that happen on vacation. And although they weren't all perfectly, didn't get executed perfectly. Um, they make for great stories. I'm not sure what my kids would tell in terms of a story of a favorite vacation, but um, that was so fun for me growing up. I wanted to recreate that for my kids, and so when our daughter Claire was one, which meant our twin boys were six, and then Ashley was eight, um, I talked Debbie, literally, I really did. I had to talk Debbie, let's go camping. And so we went to the same spot. Now, we did not take a blow-up boat, I promise you that, but it was camp, you know, tent camping and, and all of the, having to have all that gear. And, and um, so we do. We, we go and have this camping experience. And I even remember we took a dog. Taking a dog tent camping, just a bad idea. Sounds cool, but it's just not, that's high maintenance. Anyways, so two things that are most memorable for that trip for me. One was Debbie's face when I brought a shotgun to bed with us that night because it was bear country. She was a little mad that I didn't share with her that it was bear country. Um, so that was interesting. Secondly, that's when we instituted the 10 to 1 rule. And so when you're camping with really young kids, it takes about 10 minutes of work to get one minute of fun. You know, fishing with young kids, it took about 10 minutes of getting everyone set, and then they got their lines in, and I'm going, okay, now I get to fish. And by that time, the first one you know, the bait is off, it's hooked on a tree, it's hooked on a rock, they've fallen in, their feet are wet, they're cold, they're hungry, 
their diaper, whatever. You know, it, so the 10 to 1 rule, that's kind of where we instituted it in having young kids. And, and um, you know, I do remember that um, although we made some great memories, it was in no way relaxing. In fact, Debbie and I needed a vacation after that um, just to remain sane. Um, I'm sure that many of you can relate that have kids. Uh, but I had great memories on that trip as a kid. And in spite of all of my planning and effort um, to recreate it for my kids, it certainly didn't turn out uh, the way that I had hoped. Last week, Larry started off this new um, series that we've been talking about, Oh, the Places We'll Go. And, and, you know, once again, grab one of these afterwards today. But on the back, I, I love this. It says, Where will God take you? Oh, to where will he lead? Are you serving, vacationing, getting set free indeed? And so each week we're going to be talking about this whole idea of the places that God will take us. And that's not necessarily always physical places, but it might be something that he'll ask us to do that might be a little different. Because the truth is, sometimes life doesn't always turn out the way we had planned. Sometimes we find ourselves in places or on a path that we never expected. And similar to uh, the vacation that turns out different than we had planned, our life path might take us to places um, that we, we didn't think we would ever go. And has the Lord ever asked you to do something that you never expected? Have you ever found yourself in a place where you're on one path and you just sense the Lord is, is asking you to do something different? And how did you respond to that? Have you ever found yourself in a, in a really hard, hard place because of poor choices that you made? Or maybe you're on a path that you didn't choose. Someone else chose it for you because of decisions they made. And you're left wondering, Lord, why would you bring me here? I know for some of you, me asking you to move seats was a bit uncomfortable. As I said, I have some good friends that are mad at me right now. Um, but I did it for a reason, because I think sometimes we can get into the mentality, and I'll just use church as an example, of we have our places that we sit, we have our expectations of what's going to happen there, but then we never really um, have an opportunity to, to meet someone new or, or to have uh, a different experience. And it's not necessarily that um, getting into a routine is bad, but we have to be careful whenever we do that. Sometimes our routine, like sitting in the same place, can, can keep us from experiencing something new that God has for us. And, and I realize that you know, routine can be helpful in some ways. For me, once again, I like to camp, I like to hunt and fish, and, and so I share this little tent trailer with my brother-in-law. Well, I have a routine. That thing is packed a certain way, and at any time I can grab it and go. And when we're camping, my boys have learned, here's what you do. And, and now, overall, it's to have a better experience. Now, sometimes, Dad, you know, my kids think I'm being a little bit too, you know. But uh, it's, it's to help that experience. You might have a routine for your workout, how you take care of yourself. You may have a routine in your workplace. You may have a routine in how you spend your money, disciplines that you follow. My dad is 84 years old. He's got a routine to his day, and I spend regular time with him, and I learn week by week that I never mess up his routine. But we all can do that in some ways. Yes, having a routine can be helpful in some areas of our life, 
but we have to be careful not to get too stringent in it. So let's use this whole church thing as an example. And, and I'm, I'm going to refer to not anyone that goes here. This, this is happening at another church. There's this person who, um, you know, they get up on Sunday mornings and they go to this church nearby and they kind of have in their mind of what's going to happen there and what their comfort level is. And so they do. They sit in the same place each Sunday because they are comfortable with the people that they're sitting around and they listen to the message and there's parts of it that they think are literal and some that, oh, that's not for me. And then afterwards they have places that they go, maybe in a lobby or in a a little cafe where they have other friends that they'll meet and those are safe people. And if things are going well, meaning no one's asking too deep a question like, what do you think about the sermon? Or what was in there for you? They might even venture to the bagel room, which is pretty risky because you don't know who's, you know, who you're going to be near. And then, of course, they're, they always have the escape plan so that they can get home to the game on time. And so that's not, that has any, no one here does that at all. But the whole point is all the while we're not leaving room for what God might have for us, that he might be asking us to do something a little bit different because of what he has for us. And so this idea of staying in a routine on a predestined, a, a predictable, predetermined path works well with some things, but not in relationships, and certainly not in our relationship with the Lord. And so as followers of Christ, how do we remain open to what the Lord might be calling us to, to a new path he might be leading us on? Well, first we need to remember who we are and what we're called to do. And we're going to look at Matthew uh, chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. We are disciples of Christ, and we're called to go. It's the Great Commission. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. This word disciple, uh, the Greek word is methedes, which actually means one who follows. And this word disciple is used 269 times in the New Testament. Christian is used three times, and every time it refers to one who is a disciple. And I think sometimes we can treat those words differently. Like, a Christian isn't really what a disciple is. I mean, a disciple, that's those people in, like, New Testament times that, I mean, they really walked with Jesus and, and um, you know, he called them out of their jobs and away from their families and, and he, Disciples are those people that God used to um, build the church, and um, I mean, they were like really, really great people, and, and they were with Jesus himself, and whereas me, I'm, I'm just a Christian. I, I mean, I'm saved, and, and my sins have been forgiven, and, and uh, you know, I, I, I even tithe, uh, but I'm not a disciple like, like those guys. I mean, I've got issues still. I'm still working on stuff. I, I still have, you know, some things that I'm, I'm not really that great at, and, and I think we can treat those as if they're different. Disciples, those are like the heavy-duty Christians um, that, that God really uses, and, 
And those are the ones that don't struggle. The disciples are like God's varsity team, and I'm not quite ready uh, for that yet. Those are the people that go on mission trips and, and work at churches. Disciples are the people that God uses when he really wants to get something done the first time. Well, you know what? That's absolutely not true. We are all disciples of Christ. Being a disciple now isn't any different from the early church. Now, some of the mechanics may be different. Now, Jesus isn't physically standing here. We're not physically walking with him from town to town and maybe participating in along with him physically as he does miracles and as the church is established. But the priorities, the intentions, the heart, and the inner attitudes are forever the same. Well-known Christian author Dallas Willard says it this way. says, A disciple is one who is intent on becoming more Christ-like and so dwelling in his faith and practice systematically and progressively rearranging his life to that end. By these actions, even today, one who enrolls in Christ's training becomes his pupil or disciple. And so a disciple isn't a heavy-duty model of a Christian. As Christ's followers, we're part of the varsity team. And we are people who have been called to go. And although we may not always have all the answers or, or we may not be with him physically, we do have his spirit in us. And as we go, we go in his authority. Another noted teacher and author, Eugene Peterson, says, A disciple is a learner, but not in the academic setting of a classroom, rather at a work site of a craftsman. It's not about acquiring information about God, but skills in faith that are to be tested and tried. Is that how you view yourself? Well, that's how God views you. He sees you that way, and it is his intent that we bear witness of his power and grace and mercy in this broken world. And so as disciples of Jesus... In a broken world, our journey of faith includes times where we might go to places we never thought we would go. He may call you to go to a physical place. He might call you on a mission trip that you never thought you could ever go on. He might call you to move into a neighborhood because he wants you to be an agent of grace to those people in that neighborhood. It might be a different job that he calls you to. It could be some other people group. Or the Lord might call you to do something. The Lord may call you to care for someone who's in need. You might have a family member. That's what the Lord wants you to do for a season. To help someone out, maybe financially, and that causes you to have a little less security for a season. Or to reach out to someone who's difficult to love. Or to be a friend of someone who doesn't have many friends. Or maybe he's nudging you to ask forgiveness from someone that you know that you've hurt. And regardless of what it is, as disciples of Jesus, following him might lead us on a path that leads us to potentially messy relationships, difficult circumstances, 
and unforeseen obstacles that take us out of our comfortable routine. One of my favorite little passages in the New Testament, it comes from John chapter 5, and this story about the, the paralytic at the well, uh, the healing pool. Um, John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, if you have your Bible and want to turn there. A great example of someone who was certainly in a routine. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. It says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, an Aramaic, Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One man who had been an invalid there for 38 years, and when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to get healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. And when the water is stirred up, while I am uh, going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. We've talked about this passage before and just a little bit of a setup, and so evidently, um, you know, during that time, um, there were these thing, things called sheep gates. And in Jerusalem, there's one specifically called a sheep gate, an entrance. Um, but there were these places where uh, shepherds could take their sheep as they were maybe going into town and, and basically a pen that they could, you know, store them while they're going into town. And so near this sheep gate in Jerusalem, there was this pool. It was probably a spring-fed pool because you look at maps, there's not necessarily a river that's flowing into that and out of that. But, um, so there was this place where those who had different ailments would go, um, and it had some shady areas for people to, to lay. And, and so this gentleman um, had been there for 38 years. You need to understand, this place was a place for the outcasts, for those who, uh, in terms of the normal society, back then if you had some kind of an ailment, or disease, um, there weren't a lot of medications, and so often, it, you know, that just stuck with you, and so they, people were very careful. One, they didn't want an epidemic to happen, and two, um, for some, they really believed if you have that kind of an ailment, it's because of something bad that you did, and so they didn't want those people around, and so here, this, this pool outside of Jerusalem is a place um, of just great destruction, of disease, and uh, so this Man is there, and the belief was that an angel periodically would, would dip its finger into the water, and the waters would be stirred, and the first one in would be healed. And although we don't have any proof of that, um, you know, they believed it. And uh, so you would think this man, having been there for 38 years and still in the same condition, um, you would think he would find a different place to go and try and get healed, but he doesn't. Uh, but you just wonder, is there something else that was keeping him there? Maybe for him, this was a safe place that he could go. There were lots of people there who he knew, people who understood him, people who knew his story. Maybe it's just that he felt comfortable going there. Maybe he had a place there 
you know, there, there probably was some kind of hierarchy. Anytime you gather people, they're usually some kind of jostling for, for control. And, and maybe he just had his role there. And, and, and so that's why he wanted to keep going back. Maybe he just enjoyed the daily gossip of who's new and, and who's not there anymore and why aren't they there anymore. I didn't see the stirring of the waters. You know, it, it, there might be a number of reasons. For 38 years, he kept going back to a place of destruction with the same result. You know, I know people who live a life filled with destruction, and yet they remain there. You know, it's very common for, for people who have an addiction or live in an abusive relationship, it, 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 it's very difficult for them to break out of that because it's, it might be all that they know, or it might be that they, they feel like at least that person knows me, or they're too afraid to break out of that because they're not sure how they would function outside of that addiction or abusive relationship. And so this idea of staying in a place where we're stuck, staying in a place on a path that doesn't seem to be helping us, sometimes we really can just get stuck there. And so, Jesus asks him, this man who had been there for 38 years, a life filled with pain and suffering, Jesus asks him to do something really radical, to take a different path. And so in verse 6, we read, And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? Jesus offers the man a different result on a different path. But it's almost like leaving behind what he knew was too risky because he really doesn't even answer Jesus. In verse 7, we read his response. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going another steps down before me. He just went into his probably well-rehearsed story of why he can't go anywhere else, why there isn't healing anywhere else. He'd probably said that many, many times over the past 38 years. For this man, the only path that could possibly lead to healing included this pool. That's as far as he could see. For the paralytic, being crippled at the pool was less risky than being healed and walking away from what he knew. Let me say that again for me. For the paralytic, being crippled at the pool was less risky than being healed and walking away from what he knew. This man had figured out how to go about his day with a routine that only left room for the predetermined outcomes that he was comfortable with. I don't know about you, but that, that's me. I get stuck there. Because I don't like to be too uncomfortable. I don't want to step too far off the path that I've worn down really well, and I can do it in my own sleep. Because that's unpredictable. That's a bit risky. Verses 8 and 9. says, Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. 
And so Jesus steps into the path of this man with all of its tradition, all of its customs, all of its hierarchy, and he steps right in the middle of this man's path that he'd been on for 38 years, and he offers him something different with eight simple words. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Jesus steps into the path of this man and says, I want you to take a 90-degree turn. I have something very, very different for you. And the man picks up his mat, and he walks. And so what about you? Has, has Jesus ever asked you to do something really radical? Has he ever asked you to take a 90-degree turn? And how does that happen for you? Is it in your own time with the Lord, and maybe you're reading something, or journaling, and in your own prayer time, and, and maybe a, a need is made known, and, and you kind of have a way of sorting through that, or, or is it a conviction from maybe something you hear uh, on the radio, or a sermon, um, or, you know, maybe just a gentle nudge from the Lord? And how do you respond to those situations? Has Jesus ever asked you to step out of your comfort zone so that he could use you in someone else's life? Like the man at the well and that fictitious person at that other church that I referred to earlier, we need to be careful not to live our lives in such a routine that we only leave room for the predetermined outcomes that we're comfortable with. What if Jesus stepped in the middle of the path of your life and asked you to do something really radical today? Would you have your pre-rehearsed speech like the man at the well of, oh no, I can't do that because, you know. I'm sure we all have that for some areas of our life. Oh no, I don't go there. Okay. Is it because the Lord says, I don't want you going there? Or we don't go there because of something else. Something else we feel uncomfortable with. Is there a dust storm outside? Here's something I'd like us to consider. Is it possible that this whole idea of going isn't just about what God wants to do through you, but what he wants to do to you? Is it possible that the Great Commission just isn't just about uh, what God, that God wants to use us to share his good news with others? Is it possible that the good, that Great Commission is also about him getting us to a place where he can chip away at some of those things that are keeping us from fully experiencing him. And that might be a path that we're just stuck on in a routine. And finally, some of you may have found yourself in a place that you never asked to be. You're on a path that you're there because of decisions someone else made or something that's happened to a family member and you really didn't have a choice in it. You may be in a marriage that hasn't turned out how you had hoped and you're not sure how you got there. You might have a child or a family member who not only don't believe in Jesus, let alone aren't in a place where they want to surrender their life to him. And that just grieves you. Because we live in a broken and sinful world, is it, it is inevitable 
that we are going to be on different paths in our lives, that we experience pain and sorrow and disappointment. But this does not go unnoticed by our Lord. Jesus, in John chapter 16, verses th verse 33, he speaks to this point when he's preparing his disciples for the day when he will no longer physically be with his disciples. And so he says this to them. He says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may find peace, you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And Jesus' final words in the Great Commission give us this, this assurance as well when he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so wherever you find yourself today on a path you chose as a result of the Lord's leading or on a life journey that you didn't choose, be comforted by the truth that he is there with you. And not just to, to help us get by, but he is using it to mold you and me, to cause us to be more dependent on him and ultimately to give him the glory. I'm going to pray. If you just bow your heads as the band comes up, I want to read something. A friend just sent me a couple weeks ago, and, and then I'm going to pray for our time. But um, just listen to this little short reading that I think is a great summary of what we're talking about. Imagine getting to heaven and God saying, Before I laid the foundations of the earth, I thought of you and the days that you would live on the earth. I planned out the people and the places that I would give you. I laid out your neighbors and your workplace, the places that you would attend school and your family. I laid out enough days to do all the good works that I purposed for you, and I equipped you with all that you would need to accomplish those purposes here. I filled you with my spirit to encourage and remind you and lead you. I gave you my word so that you would know me and know what to do. I gave you people to run with and people who needed you and people who needed me as well. Let's talk about how, how all that went. Lord, um, thank you that you do not leave us alone. Lord, that um, although at times we may feel alone, you are with us. You have a purpose, Lord, and you have laid out our paths. And Father, I pray that we would be a people who would have the courage, Lord, to be open to what you have for us, that we'd be attentive to the needs around us, Lord. Thank you for your word, that it is true. And uh, just thank you for this time.